and welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based podcast of the archives of diseases of childhood, this month with Added Kitten. So in the background you might hear purring, meowing, or maybe even the faint sounds of a cat thinking deeply about how to put evidence-based medicine into her daily life. It's unlikely, but it might happen. Anyway, back to the podcast proper where we will be dealing with a small section on how to think about evidence-based medicine and then a couple of clinical questions that were asked by healthcare professionals as they wandered around the world and wondered, how can I do this better? What question do I have? Can I go away and find the evidence? Can I appraise it to understand its strengths and its weaknesses and then translate that into a, a doable action on the far end? This month we've got chest x-rays after chest drains and we've also got a question of if adding a topical anaesthetic to a child's nose before putting a nasogastric tube down makes a difference to their experience. But first let's wonder about trials and practice of medicine in the evidence-based era. It's when big stuff hits and happens that the machinery of state or the hospital or the community or the household seems to step up and move fast and effectively to undertake activities that it seemed to take months to do previously. Enormous clinical trials of agents to treat the complications of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 have sprung into existence within weeks. Hospitals have literally built ICU capacity where hernias had been being repaired in the week before. Communities mobilised to provide food for the shielded who were keeping themselves inside and not going out for any reason whatsoever. We've probably all seen similar efforts when a disaster has struck, be that a life-changing natural disaster to a whole area such as an earthquake or tsunami or a similar sort of thing but happening at a household level, so maybe the diagnosis of childhood malignancy or the death of a colleague. Where everyone seems to struggle is is not in a sense with these major challenges, but the apparently mundane, the minutiae of life, the annoyingly aversive, answering questions like what's the best management of fatigue after chemotherapy? How do you sort out drooling in children with cerebral palsy or exclude significant liver disease in babies that are only mildly jaundiced? The types of studies that we can find that address these sorts of questions are often classed as poor quality, but they are still the best that we can get. These mundane challenges are frequently studied only by looking over past experiences or by very small trust studies that are often labelled as a pilot, but they're not really a pilot. They're not going anywhere in the future. They're tacked onto somebody's degree and didn't need any extra funding. These studies may be riddled with missing data, unvalidated outcome measures and unreported confounding factors, even if we knew they were confounding factors but just didn't put them in the medical note. Evidence-based medicine in a sense is relatively straightforward. If you've got a trial of 10,000 patients over the course of three or four different agents or a few hundred to pick the right chemotherapy approach, but it's extremely tricky if you're dealing with something like reducing radiation exposure for children who've had their chest drains removed. How can we meaningfully address this issue? Well, as practitioners in an evidence-based area, we can continue to do the best that we can do. We can use the evidence that we have. But 
perhaps we can also advocate in the reset and recovery phase following the pandemic that when we needed it the most, we moved into clinical trials, we undertook wild and varied clinical studies so that we got the answers to questions that we needed the data for. Maybe we can advocate for that approach being used for all questions in all diseases, not just those that affect the globe. Maybe one of the silver linings can be that next year, the memory of the pandemic allows us to encourage clinical research very broadly, and that every question has at least one or two people studying it in future. Now, the first of our clinical questions is indeed, are routine chest x-rays required after the removal of chest strains in children? Now, this has been asked by Alexandra Richards at the Cardiff Medical School and Jordan Ellis, who works in the emergency department in Cardiff. The setting is one that is maybe a little unfamiliar to some people, uh, paediatric oncologists, for example, but it's, it's actually really, really reminiscent of things that happen all the time. So this is a two-year-old girl admitted to PICU following a traumatic pneumothorax after a road traffic collision. After a few days, the chest drain is removed and she is transferred to the ward for further observation. When you see her, she is well, there's no respiratory distress, observations are normal for age, and you're asked to arrange a chest x-ray to make sure that the pneumothorax has resolved. You wonder about this, and is there really any point in it? And so the structured clinical question emerges following the chest strain removal in children, that's the patient, does routine chest radiography, the intervention, assist in monitoring or change the management in asymptomatic patients, and that's the outcome. Now, you'll remember that Archimedes has had a bit of a thing for routine chest x-rays in a number of different settings, be that febrile neutropenia back a decade or so ago, or the follow-up of people that had a, a radiologically documented pneumonia. And that was a, a thing that we did in the olden days. For this question, in uh, the back end of 2019, the team went away and searched Embase and Medline using a range of different words to try to get this information, looked in the Cochrane Library and identified 98 potential articles. Of those of them, 14 appeared to be potentially relevant, but then whittled down to only six of them needing uh, actual data that was going to pull things together. This did include quite a lot of patients, one of them with 462 patients in, another with 135 that had had x-rays not done. Neonates were included in this as well as proper children. So lots and lots of children drawn in, all of them being case series in a sense, a number of them retrospectively based around charts and a couple of them prospectively looking forwards in time. What they found was that when you pull all of this information together, that the, the risk of having a pneumothorax after you've taken that drain out is really quite small, probably somewhere around the 1-5% to level. That in other areas, we already know this, and it's true here too, that it's clinical findings that predict the need for intervention rather than anything just on the x-ray itself. And that if you notice an, a reaccumulation of air in the routine x-ray but don't have clinical findings to go along with it, then you don't really do anything about it anyway. 
And so doing a straight up radiographic examination after the drain's been out doesn't really help one way or the other. One thing that was noted in a couple of the studies was that actually the people did have an acute x-ray that looked all right, but then deteriorated later and went on to have something done. So it's not even as if a good x-ray definitely tells you that they're going to be all right. Pulling all of this together, they come up with a couple of very sensible clinical bottom lines. Following chest drain removal, close clinical observation is favoured over routine chest radiography. And that radiography in these patients really should be reserved for symptomatic patients, partly because that's where you're going to find it, but also because they're the patients in whom you're actually going to do something about it. The other question this month comes from Daniel Moore, the Royal Berkshire A&E Department, and Ilana Levine of the John Radcliffe Hospital, both in the Oxfordshire area. It's a question of, again, the mundane, but the really, really important. Does topical anaesthesia reduce the pain and distress of nasogastric tube insertion in children? Now, we have definitely all been here, even paediatric oncologists, with a two-year-old who presents with a short history of diarrhoea and vomiting, clinically dehydrated, hemodynamically stable, and what she needs is enteral rehydration. Failing an oral fluid challenge, she's admitted for rehydration via the nasogastric route, and this is extremely sensible, much better than the intravenous route for lots and lots of reasons. And then you are confronted by a medical student from the department who's actually really upset because it's a distressing procedure. The patient appeared to be being pinned down while a tube was shoved down the child's nose. You had listened to an American podcast recently, and it's nothing against Americans, but really, if you do listen to things on podcasts, you should probably check the evidence out. And that's what these these people did. Because... because they recommended using topical anaesthesia and, and you genuinely never thought about it. Now, Daniel and Alana went away and they searched a string of different databases, including Medline, Embase, Sinal, Emergency Care, Ahmed, HMIC and PsychInfo, because with it being a distress and procedural related thing, it might well be within the psychology literature rather than anywhere else, and looked extensively to see if they could pull something together. They were assisted by one of the medical librarians in Oxford in doing this, and the search, when you get to look at it, is absolutely a superb example of how you can really, really get out there and examine what might be possible in that area. Now, this search found 361 potential articles, but only two of those were actually of relevance. Now, now that is the sort of thing where if you're really going to go big guns on this, that's the sort of number you're expecting, somewhere around 1% to 2% of your original hits being included. These studies were in children and pulled together 136 kids, that's all, um, aged between six months and five years old, which is really very few, isn't it, when you consider how many nasogastric tubes we, we come down to. One of them was a, a 36 children in the sort of the one to five age range where it was a double-blinded uh, uh, use of a nebulized lignocaine versus nebulized placebo, trying to 
to, to numb the upper airway and using a, a researcher who was blinded to that outcome looking at the, the, the FLAC score which is a way of assessing distress particularly in young children. The other one was a hundred children randomised between a nasal spray with lignocaine in it and a placebo nasal spray dosed up according to the, the size of the child again using the FLAC score which is a distress based score um, to see what the benefit of this would be. Now the, the, the FLAC, F-L-A-C-C, stands for Face, Legs, Activity, Cry and Consolability. Each one of those aspects is observed and scored as zero, being the, the, the sort of least distressed, and two, being extremely distressed. So for example, in the face score, zero is no particular expression or the, the child's smiling, one is the occasional grimace or frown, and two is a constant frown, a clenched jaw, a quivering chin. So that sort of idea that you can, you can observe distress, uh, even when, when kids can't really express things very clearly. The, the nasogastric tube insertion is certainly distressing to look at and, 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 and it certainly seems to be distressing if you ask people who've gone through it. When you look at uh, what emergency doctors think about this, nearly all of them say, yes, it's distressing, but very few of them would use an, a routinely use an anaesthetic agent. Now that's slightly surprising perhaps, but but when you look at it, there's actually an analysis of adult studies with 200 odd patients in it, showing that giving local anaesthetic via sort of an atomized or nebulized route does reduce the amount of distress that's gone on with that. And a single study using a, 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 a spray with lignocaine on it drops down the patient pain scores by over 75% and potentially improves the chance of getting the insertion first time round. Now, this is one of those ones where you've got to think, are adults the same as children? Because when you use this, this observer-derived FLAC score, which is an overall distress measure, what you see is giving local anaesthetic doesn't really make a great deal of difference to the distress that the child is experiencing when they're having the nasogastric tube down. It could well be that the distress that's associated with it and the discomfort that goes along with it isn't so much a, a pain response that could be made better with lignocaine, but instead it's the distress of the entire experience that's going on, which would suggest that other strategies would be of benefit, not the use of a sort of squirted-in painkiller. Now, given that it works in adults but doesn't seem to work in smaller children and there is a question about the dose, um, maybe future studies could look at a, a different dose and maybe other studies could look at that sort of age range that's older than five but less than adult. It might be that when there's more understanding of the procedure that actually the use of pain relief in a bigger kid would be a fair thing to do. Their bottom lines are that the current evidence suggests that this sort of sprayed top-like anaesthetic does not reduce distress in the, in the small child, the under five-year-old, although there is uncertainty about that and the, the dose might be wrong. But maybe if you do have a bigger kid, a teenager perhaps, or, or maybe even a little bit smaller than that, it would be a fair thing to do to use a topical anaesthetic especially if they're already cooperative, because then what it's doing really is addressing the pain rather than the overall distress of the procedure. So, 
evidence-based stuff on the minutiae and the mundane. These are enormously important things to patients. Yes, everybody wants their child to survive, but they also, generally speaking, want the quality of survival to be as good as possible and the quality of the experience living through illnesses to be as good as possible. We need to advocate for the use of best evidence in patient care and we also, alongside that, need to advocate to improve the quality of evidence when we're doing evidence-based medicine. Stay safe everyone, I hope your hands haven't cracked and we will speak to you on the other side of the pandemic, I'm sure.